0: Good morning. As always, I count it a tremendous privilege to be able to share God's word with all of you, and may our God and our Savior and Lord Jesus the Christ be honored and magnified in our midst this morning. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to chapter 12 of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Last time we were in Matthew's Gospel, we looked at the first 21 verses of chapter 12, where Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And referring to himself, he also said that something greater than the temple was there in the midst of Israel 2,000 years ago. I'm not going to retread that ground this morning. Except to remind you that what we saw there in the beginning of Matthew chapter 12 is what we have seen before in Matthew's gospel. And what we will most assuredly see again, even this morning, the the confrontational nature of the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his day. We can see this, of course, in verse 2 of chapter 12, where Jesus and his disciples are confronted by the Pharisees for picking heads of grain and eating them on a Sabbath day. And of course, then in verse 10, where they ask Jesus if it's lawful to heal on a Sabbath day, plainly looking to accuse him, Matthew tells us. And then the episode culminates in verse 14, where Matthew tells us that these so-called violations of the Sabbath were driving the Jewish religious leaders to, to the point where they were now seeking to destroy him. Briefly, also, we saw Matthew in verses 18 through 21, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42. And we noted the gentleness of Jesus toward those who are the least and the lost the bruised reed hanging by a mere fiber, or the stinking, smoldering wick ready to be doused by a harsh, uncaring world. As we will see, Again today, Jesus is not gentle toward the religious hypocrite. But he is also gentle with those in need of healing. And those who to our eyes are seemingly far from God. For Yahweh says there in verse 21, In his name the nations will hope that brief review, let's dive into today's text. There's a lot here. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. Verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. We'll stop there for now. A couple of items here first as a bit of background. First we see that the crowds who were astounded that Jesus was able to perform this exorcism right in front of them. We see the crowds were saying, can this man be the son of David? Verse 23... Where does this come from? This identification of Jesus with the son of David. Well, Matthew has already noted this in his gospel twice. First, Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, in the very first verse of his gospel. As he's about to enter into Jesus' genealogy. So there's no doubt about this in Matthew's Mind, But more importantly, for our consideration this morning, in the narrative of Jesus' ministry, Matthew has already introduced us to this idea that there were people in that day who were referring to Jesus as the Son of David. We saw back in Matthew 9, verse 27, which Brother Jason read earlier, that two blind men in Galilee had cried out to Jesus, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And make no mistake son of David is a messianic term. The point is this. We can see the tension building in the life and ministry of Jesus as people are attributing these messianic terms, these messianic titles to Jesus. And the Jewish religious leaders don't like that. And I also want you to see in our text in Matthew 12 that this tension hits a bit of a tipping point here in Matthew 12. What do I mean? Well, we also saw in the Matthew 9 narrative, after Jesus had healed a different mute, demon-possessed man, that the Pharisees had previously accused Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, which again was read earlier. At that time, however, Jesus chooses not to respond to that particular accusation. But here, in Matthew 12, Jesus chooses to respond directly to this idea that he's in fact working for Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, the lord of the flies, So we see then, perhaps, that the Pharisees are egging Jesus on just a bit with this accusation. And like we saw in the earlier portion of Matthew 12, Jesus is happy to take on this confrontation at this particular time. So let's together see how Jesus answers this accusation. What I want us to see is that Jesus takes on this accusation in three parts. I'm going to give you the three parts up front, and then we'll see them in the text together. Number one, first, Jesus will obliterate their argument using reason and logic. Second, Jesus will obliterate their argument again using the Jews' own exorcists as an example. And third, and finally, Jesus will tell these religious hypocrites that his exorcisms are clear evidence that the kingdom of God has arrived and is now in their midst. Let's take these one by one, please. Look with me again at verses 22 through 26. First, Jesus obliterates the Pharisees' argument using plain reason and logic. Verse 22, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Verse 25 And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The logic here is not difficult to see. I assume you see it. We all know this statement from Jesus has actually made its way into our culture, has it not? We all know that a kingdom, a city, a house divided against itself will not stand. It will not thrive. It will not flourish. So what's going on here in the text? Frankly, Jesus is making it clear that this accusation is nothing more than mere posturing from the Pharisees. They're blinded by hate, and apparently this is the best that they could do. I mean, have you ever heard someone who is blinded and all balled up with hate try to argue, try to make any sense? Doesn't it almost always end up that that person just is spewing ridiculous things out of his or her mouth? That is what we have here with the Pharisees. We already saw in verse 14 above that these religious leaders have come to the place where they're trying to destroy him. What makes you think that somehow, gripped by their hatred, that they're going to use reason and logic in their argumentation against Jesus? That's literally not how it works. And so Jesus simply refutes their accusation with common sense. Inspired common sense, no doubt. But simple reason and logic. But then Jesus goes on. And he obliterates their argument again, using the Jews' own exorcists as an example. Look with me, if you will, at verse 27. Again, Jesus is speaking, And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Speaking to the Pharisees. So what's going on here? What is Jesus talking about? You simply need to know that in first century Israel, there were, in fact, Jewish exorcists who went around extracting demons from those so possessed. For example, you can read in Acts chapter 19 about the Jewish sons of Siva, or sometimes pronounced Skiva, who made a kind of hilarious attempt at exorcising an evil spirit and got their hind ends kicked afterward. Nonetheless, the Bible, in fact, bears witness to this reality to which Jesus is referring. Also, the Jewish historian Josephus, he's writing, of course, in the first century. He says this, please bear with me, quote, Josephus writes, I have seen a certain man of my own country, that is, he was Jewish, whose name was Eleazar, releasing people that were demon-possessed in the presence of Roman General Vespasian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through the nostrils. And when the man fell down, immediately he abjured him to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which Solomon had composed. And when Eleazar would persuade and demonstrate to the spectators that he had had such power, he set a little way off a cup or basin full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn the cup of water and thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. End quote. So the point here is that Jesus, in the second part of his response to the Pharisees, Jesus says, wait a minute, fellas. You Jews have your own people who are out and about performing exorcisms. What about them? By whose power are your people casting out these demons? Is it Beelzebul? The answer to this rhetorical question is obviously no. No. Of course it isn't. At least that's not the Pharisees' answer. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, Well then, if the Jewish exorcists are doing good and not the will of the prince of demons, then even they would defend me and what I'm doing. And they, they will in fact judge you, you religious hypocrites, for your misguided accusation. So once again, we see Jesus utterly destroying this fallacious argument that the Pharisees are making. By simply pointing them to what was going on in their own circles, in their own land. Finally, now that he has obliterated their argument, Jesus will tell these religious hypocrites that his exorcisms are clear evidence that the kingdom of God has arrived. Look with me together, please, at verses 28 through 30. Jesus continues on. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, remember the Pharisees had accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, right? We see this clear contact, uh, contrast. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. We have to see these three verses together. Jesus is making one extended statement here in these three verses, and that statement is this. Please listen, the kingdom of God has arrived. I'm here to take back what is rightfully mine, and you're either with me or you're against me in this endeavor. Let me say that again. In these three verses, verses 28 through 30 of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is making one extended statement, and it is this The kingdom of God has arrived. I'm here to take back what is rightfully mine, and you are either with me or you are against me in this endeavor. Let's see this together. Verse 28. Couldn't be any clearer, I don't think. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. bit of a side discussion here. Please bear with me. Matthew chapter 12 is followed by Matthew chapter 13. And I'm not trying to shock you with that particular piece of information, okay? But you need to know that in Matthew chapter 13, there are parables. And most of those parables begin with the phrase, The kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees, The kingdom of God has come upon you, Please understand, Jesus knows what the kingdom of God is. And Matthew, the gospel writer, is about to tell you in the next chapter what the kingdom of God is like. So whatever you or I have in our minds about what the kingdom of God is, or even when the kingdom of God is, it better be consistent with the chapter that's coming. Anyway... Back to our text. Again, it couldn't be any clearer from our Lord. He says, I'm obviously not working for Beelzebul. And if you can get that through your thick skulls, you hypocrites, then it should be obvious to you that I'm performing these exorcisms on behalf of God Himself. That's verse 28. Verse 29, Jesus asks a question. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Who's this strong man that Jesus is referring to? The strong man is Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, the very one to whom the Pharisees were referring And what, or rather who, who's the strong man's house? What is the strong man's property? Well, in direct context, it is this man standing right in front of them, who has been healed, he has been cleansed. This man was indwelt by a demon, he was literally housing a demon. And thus the man was the demon's property. And Jesus, the Son of God, shows up, extracts the demon, binds the strong man, and takes the man unto himself. Jesus says, no longer demon, this one is mine. Now get out of here. And the demon is gone. Now, very quickly, I'm going to give you just a taste of the next sermon in Matthew. I want you to know... And you can read through this afterward. I want you to know that this exorcism that we're talking about right now, this back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, is a foreshadowing of the very next interaction they will have. This man, now free from a demon, is a microcosmic, very small foil to these first century Jews as a whole. And that, Lord willing, is for Pastor Scott to explain next time. It's not a separate story that's coming. So in verse 29, Jesus declares that he is stronger than the strong man, Satan, and this exorcism is clear evidence of that. The kingdom of God has arrived and it is stronger than the kingdom of Satan, even Jesus says, even as I am stronger than he is. I will plunder him, Jesus says, and I will take back all That is rightfully mine. Now, verse 30. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no exegesis or interpretation needed for that statement in my view. Let's move on. Let's pick up in verse 31. Therefore, Jesus continues on, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So this should be fun, right? This should be fun. Let's talk about the unforgivable sin. So much has been written on this particular topic. I am personally of the opinion that this topic has been made more difficult than it needs to be. And usually that's because people have some preconceived notion about the answer to the question, what exactly is the unforgivable sin? Some people speculate, and this is true, you can see it even in the commentaries. Some people speculate that it's murder, some say it's adultery, some say it's unbelief. We'll get there in a moment. But before we start talking about unforgiveness... However, let me first begin by talking about forgiveness. Please allow me to make it as plain as possible. Friends, the one true God of the universe is a forgiving God. And that's a very good thing, because we all, every single one of us, is in need of forgiveness. Because every single one of us has transgressed the law. We have gone against the will of this same one true God. He is a God of righteousness. And He demands that human beings, made in His image and likeness, be holy and righteous, even as He is holy and righteous. And because of the sin nature that we have inherited from our father Adam, we are not that. We are not holy and righteous. And as a result, this holy and righteous God would be 100% just to condemn every one of us, no questions asked, guilty, gone from his sight forever. But, it's a gospel word. But this same holy and righteous God is also a forgiving God. And by His grace and mercy, He has made a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven and reconciled to Him. And this way, one way, is through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of His Son, Jesus of Nazareth, who died in the law place of sinners like you and me, taking upon Himself the punishment that we most certainly deserve because of our sin, our lying, our cheating, our stealing, our hatred, our idolatry, our self-centeredness, even murder, abortion, adultery, whatever it is, all of it can be cleansed by the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. By a simple faith in what He has accomplished at the cross of Calvary. John writes this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we start talking about the unforgivable sin, let us not lose sight of this great mercy and grace and forgiveness that has been made available to sinners like us through the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Savior. So then let us return to the text of Matthew chapter 12. Now, Just a moment ago, I only read through verse 32. But I think it's important that we read through verse 37. It's all the same context. It's all the same discussion. And I'm going to emphasize certain words which I trust will be clear to all of you as we proceed. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says this... Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So what is the first thing we should see here? The first thing to see is that the Lord Jesus is placing a heavy emphasis on a person's words. What a person says, if I may, what a person confesses with their mouth. And this is important to see because the phrase speaks against provides a direct parallel to the word blasphemy. Look at that again in verses 31 and 32. See the parallel here. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. So the first thing we should understand is exactly what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is speaking evil of or speaking against. It is words spoken. It is a confession made. The second thing we need to see here is that a person's words are not the definitive issue. They are not the definitive problem. For Jesus says that a tree is known how? How is a tree known? It is known by its fruit. Verse 33. Jesus also says that the evil Pharisees, he calls them a brood of vipers, in case me calling them names makes you uncomfortable. He calls them a brood of vipers. The evil Pharisees can't speak what is good, verse 34. And why not? Why can't the evil Pharisees speak a good word to Jesus? Verse 34, because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The Pharisees can't speak a good word because their hearts are full of hatred. And at this moment, that hatred is directed toward Jesus. And it will continue to be all the way up until the time when Jesus is even on the cross. You don't have to go there. Just listen to this excerpt from later in Matthew's Gospel account. Matthew 27, you don't have to go there. Verse 39. And those passing by were blaspheming him. Who? Jesus shaking their heads and saying you who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days save yourself if you're the son of God come down from the cross verse 41 in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him saying he saved others he cannot save himself he's the king of Israel let him now come down from that cross and we will believe in him he trusts in God let God rescue him now If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. This, friends, is the definition of blasphemy against the Son of Man. And it was done by those passing by, verse 39 of Matthew 27, as well as by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of Israel, verse Forty-one of Matthew chapter 27. And it's important to understand that some of those who were passing by that day, some of those chief priests and scribes and elders were in fact forgiven for their blasphemy. In the early part of the book of Acts, realize for the first couple of decades after Pentecost, the overwhelming majority of converts to Christianity were Jews. Jews, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, Jews who themselves had crucified Christ. Peter's preaching Acts 2, he says, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet verse 36 of Acts 2 therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified and there's no pointing in Acts 2 but I imagine he was pointing This is why it's important to understand why blasphemy against Jesus is not unforgivable. Because it is the very sin that those Jews who were shouting crucify him were committing. And in Acts 2, cut to the heart because of what they had done just a few weeks before, Peter doesn't say to them, sorry losers, but there's no forgiveness for you. No, Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For, for what? For what? The forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2, verse 38. But blasphemy against, speaking evil against the Holy Spirit... That is a different thing entirely. This will not be forgiven. And with the stakes so high, we should make sure that we know exactly what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I submit that it's just right on the face of the text. Matthew chapter 12, look with me again, verses 22 through 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, they said, this man, referring to Jesus, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In this accusation, the Pharisees are attributing the works of Jesus to Satan. By their words, they are blaspheming Jesus, the Son of Man. But then the warning comes. Don't miss the warning. Verse 28. Jesus warns them. He says, alright, you attributed my works to Satan, but but if you're wrong... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees here, Be careful. Don't mistake the decidedly supernatural works of the Spirit of God Himself for the works of the enemy. And when... When does Jesus say, when should people be concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Verse 32. In this age, or in the age to come. Now, we have to be careful about a couple things here as we consider this phrase, or these phrases, in this age, or in the age to come. In verse 32. There are two things that you have to see here. First, If you're reading from an English Standard Version, then you will not be able to see what I'm about to say. But if you're reading a New American Standard Version, or a King James Version, or a New King James Version, or a Legacy Standard Bible, if you're reading from one of these translations, you will note in your Bible that the second time the word age appears in verse 32, it is in italics. Which means that the second word, age, is not in the original Greek text. It is put there by the translators as a help. The Greek word, one word translated usually as age to come, is the word mellow. And it usually just means coming soon. Or about to come. So verse 32, most literally translated, and you can find a literal a literal translation, and it'll read something like this. Verse 32, Jesus says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the what's about to come. Or, or perhaps in this age or in the soon coming. Now let me be clear, secondly, I don't have any issue okay, with the translation saying in this age or in the age to come. The, the men and women who do those translations are, are way smarter than me. I don't have any issue with what's written there. Okay? As long as we understand, as long as we don't automatically relegate the age to come to the consummation that is yet future to us. Let me be even more clear. Please listen. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit takes place in the age of the Holy Spirit, which began at Pentecost and of which we are all a part. And this understanding is essential to our interpretation. So with all this in our minds, right? First, blasphemy is words spoken. It's a confession made. Secondly, the words that are spoken are not definitive. That is, the root issue, the underlying cause is the state of a person's heart. And third, blasphemy against the Spirit takes place primarily in the age of the Spirit, the church age, from Pentecost to the future consummation. That's now. With all this in our minds, we can now ask and answer the question which I know that you have all been waiting for. What exactly is the unforgivable sin? What exactly is blasphemy against the Spirit? This is really what you all want to know, right? I mean, this is why you're here. Here it goes. Here's what the Bible teaches about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a spoken denial of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, which is evidence of a heart not truly born again by the Holy Spirit, which necessarily results in unforgiveness and eternal damnation on the day of judgment. I will say that again. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a spoken denial of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, which is evidence of a heart not truly born again by the Holy Spirit, which necessarily results in unforgiveness and eternal damnation on the day of judgment. And the primary, listen, this is so important for us, the primary context for this sin, brothers and sisters, is the church. Those outside the church, people who do not know that there is a Holy Spirit, those who do not acknowledge that there is a Holy Spirit or a triune God, those who simply deny Jesus Christ in their unbelief, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, whatever, they will die in their sins and they will be damned to an eternal hell for sure. And no one here, I'm sure, least of all me, denies that. But those who know of the Holy Spirit, who have heard of the Holy Spirit, who, listen, those who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, these are the ones who are in danger. All who are within the sound of my voice and the voice of so many Bible preachers who proclaim the glories and excellencies of a triune God, Father, Son and Spirit and all who have heard of the triune God and have heard of the Holy Spirit these are the ones who are in danger of this unforgivable sin. It's hard to blaspheme a person if you've never heard of them. Really hard. So let's get down to some brass tacks here, shall we? What exactly does this mean? What exactly is the issue in the context of the church? Two very practical things. First, anyone who is exposed to the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit and then denies His power should be very careful. A few weeks ago, something happened at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, have heard about it. Which, for those of you who don't know, is the same location as a revival that occurred back in 1970. Just as a refresher, a chapel service at the university, which started on February 8th of this year, continued on literally without pause until February 24th. And by the event, I'm sorry, by the end, the event, let's call it, brought something like 50 to 70,000 visitors to Wilmore, representing more than 200 academic institutions and multiple countries. Now, more than a few people have asked me my opinion about what happened down there at Asbury. And you don't have to, you know, just have to know how to use a search engine to find lots of people talking about it. My answer has been pretty consistent. I don't know. It turns out that Asbury University is about 400 miles from here. And my family elected to not make the drive to Wilmore, Kentucky to see what was going on for ourselves. What's the point? The point is this. My opinion is that we ought to be careful from 400 or more miles away to make a definitive statement about what the Holy Spirit of God may or may not be doing in the lives of His people in the church. I mean, this is a self-authenticating conclusion, I think. Was there some kind of mix of good and bad stuff going on there over the course of those couple of weeks? Probably. But friends, there always is a mix of good and bad stuff going on. This sermon, for sure, is not inspired the, way, the same way the, you know, the, the Bible is inspired. I humbly submit to you the following question. Who am I to make some definitive statement about what the Holy Spirit is or is not doing from 400 miles away? Now, I'm not saying that anyone who made a definitive statement about the recent Asbury revival is guilty of the unforgivable sin. But what I am saying, as a point of application from this text in Matthew chapter 12, what I am saying is that we should be careful to make a definitive judgment about what the Holy Spirit is and is not doing, especially from afar. Yes, there are tests that we can and we should use. In fact, we're commanded in the Bible to test every spirit. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Because it is true, there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. But cannot God, the Holy Spirit, use some mixture of good and bad stuff to accomplish his purposes without us having to understand it all? And be so quick to denounce the things that are happening hundreds, even thousands of miles away. So my first word of application this morning to us is this. Brothers and sisters, let us be a little bit more gracious and careful and slow to pass judgment on apparently supernatural events. Especially when they're happening far from us. Remembering that we are not the final authority on any of these things. For those of you following along in the Hebrew study, I think this is just the law of liberty, isn't it? Isn't it true that those people, especially the leaders at Asbury University, they will have to answer to God for what happened there? As each of us walks this Christian life out before God himself? Now, let's turn up the heat just a little bit. I said that I don't believe that those who passed judgment on the Asbury revival were necessarily guilty of the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. So then, Brother Steve, who exactly is in danger of such a serious offense against God? Well, the Bible provides for us two definitive texts to look at. One of them I alluded to just a few moments ago. Please turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. We heard it read earlier. Hebrews chapter 6. We might only get to one of these texts. Hebrews 6. For in the case... Verse 4. For in the case of those once having been enlightened... And having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for those whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Brothers and sisters, only those who persevere to the end will be saved. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs when persons in the church context have experienced the working of the Holy Spirit. Look at it again, verse 4: been enlightened. Tasted of the heavenly gift. Become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's the word mellow again there, by the way. And then verse 6. Verse 6. And having fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. I literally said a few months ago from Hebrews chapter 6 on a Wednesday night. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time, right? But when somebody looks like they believe, looks like they're bearing fruit, and then turns away, like really, truly, finally turns away, and I'm not the judge of that, and neither is anyone in here, but really, finally confesses with their mouth something antithetical to what they had previously confessed. The question that I asked on Wednesday night a few months ago was, What are you going to try to win them with now? Like, were you holding back something about the gospel? No, we're not holding this back. Preaching the gospel to lost sinners is a dangerous deal. Yes, it is the power of God and the salvation for sinners who believe, but we also need to understand that it can also have a hardening effect. When it is rejected, it is rejected. And even worse, when it is seemingly believed and then rejected... This is a very dire situation. It was true for the first century Jews, and it is true for 21st century Gentiles as well. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The apostate, having once confessed faith in Jesus Christ, now denies Jesus not asks questions or struggles with their faith and is open to having conversations, but they deny Jesus. They confess with their mouth the opposite of what they previously confessed. They deny that the supernatural works to which he has been witness, even the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that a person once claimed had occurred within him, claiming that he had in fact been born again by the Holy Spirit of God himself, if he denies all of that, the preacher to the Hebrews says, that's it. And it necessarily results in unforgiveness and eternal damnation on the day of judgment. Mark 3.29, in a parallel passage, Jesus says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is why we need each other, and I'm wrapping up by promise. This is why we need each other in the church. We need God's word exhorting us day by day. We need each other to be exhorting one another to persevere in the faith. And listen, not just when times are difficult, that's important, everyone understands that. But even in the relatively peaceful times, I had no idea what Jason was going to talk about here earlier today. And he had no idea what I was going to talk about, but he basically preached part of my sermon. Not just in the difficult times, but in the relatively peaceful times. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you the following question. Has it not been in the relatively peaceful times when our faithfulness and our devotions and our prayers have grown the most cold? Let us believe and exhort one another today, lest any one of us, may God forbid, lest any one of us... Fall away. And I really am finishing. Just give me one, a minute. One final word of application. It is quite likely that difficult times are coming for us. Who believe that this book we carry around with us is God's inspired, infallible word. So I want to point something out to you from this text. That is obvious, but it's almost always assumed. Look at verse 22 with me again, where we started this morning. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Again, obvious but assumed. Demonic powers are real. And sometimes the clearest evidence of their reality is the resulting blindness and deafness. I just note here that the word mute in verse 22 is also translated as deaf many times in the scriptures. It is likely that this man could not speak because foundationally he could not hear. And why do I mention this obvious but assumed point? Because I want us to be aware, right? When these difficult times come for us who who believe, right... What's behind the difficult times that may be coming? What's behind the abortion mills, deceptively referred to as reproductive health care facilities? What's behind the push for assisted suicide, deceptively referred to as end-of-life care? What's behind the transgender movement and the mutilation of perfectly formed teen and preteen bodies of precious little boys and girls? What's behind the tyranny that's coming When gospel preachers are jailed for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Where mere men believe they should be the arbiters of every decision that you make on a daily basis right down to the food on your plate. What's behind all of these things are demonic forces. Paul says this, our struggle as Christians is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I mean, you either believe this or you do not. And I do. These puny little men and women, they are not our enemies. We are battling against, we are persevering against forces that we cannot see, brothers and sisters. And listen, this is the whole point. These forces that we are battling against, that we cannot see, but are nonetheless real, they cause human beings, the people around us, who belittle us, who denounce us, who cancel us, and occasionally want to kill us, these forces cause human beings to be blind and deaf to the things of God. Now, for the internet people, I'm not saying that every single person who does any of these things is demon-possessed. But I am most certainly saying that the culture of death and the mangling of the bodies of these precious children has behind it the spiritual forces of wickedness that Paul tells us about. So, my last question to all of you this morning is this Do you believe in the power of the gospel to break through the blindness and to break through the deafness of the people around you? I mean, do you really believe that? Do you believe that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ? If we do, then we only have one option. We must be resolved to leave here today and to go out to these people. Yes, these people who belittle us and denounce us and cancel us and occasionally want to kill us. We must go to them and proclaim to them that Jesus Christ is both Savior and King. We proclaim to them that their sin is an affront to the holy and righteous God who created them. But also proclaim to them with gentleness and respect and with love that this same God, this one true God, is a forgiving God. Who sent His one and only Son to this earth that whosoever believes on Him will never perish but will be granted joy and peace and love, immeasurable and eternal life in His gracious and glorious presence. Amen? Let's pray.